Uh, let's do a warm-up question. Uh, I know it's hot. We'll sort of sharpen our focus, sharpen our attention, get the brain flowing. Uh, what battle are you trying to win uh, right now in life? What battle are you trying to win? I will give you eight seconds to think about it. What battle are you trying to win? Not like necessarily right this second, like the battle to not sweat or something. No, like just, you know, just sort of in, in this moment of life, this season of life. So whatever it is, uh, here's the deal. Uh, one key uh, to being a mature person is keeping track of that battle. Is keeping track of the battle that you're trying to win, uh, keeping track of the fact that you actually are battling. Because even if things go really well for you in your life challenges, you'll probably be tempted to stray from victory in life. You will achieve something, and then there are all forces, all sorts of forces in life that come against you that try to ruin your uh, achievement. Uh, this is what I mean by that. Often the enemy can't beat you, so he merely tries to ruin your victory. And uh, we all learned this in middle school, right? Especially the boys. Uh, because middle school is often a time where we learn competition and rivalry, right? So, I don't know. This, I'll just be sort of stereotypical. You get called out on the playground. You're playing some really uh, hyped up game of, of uh, four square or basketball or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the game happens to be where you're trying to prove your manhood, right? And so you get challenged. Yeah, yeah, we remember some awesome four square battles. And... Uh, and let's say you win through. Let's say you face down the bully. Let's say you conquer your rival. Just give yourself a, a self-high five right now because, yeah, you remember what that was like. Yeah, yeah. The gateway to adolescence right there. Um, and, and then uh, what does the defeated party do in that moment? Yeah, the defeated party talks. Trash talks, right? It's like, well, you cheated. Or... I wasn't really trying, or yeah, as if that was a really big deal. It's just a stupid game, right? What you try to do is rob the victory away, right? We all know this. You're looking at me with blank faces, but we all know this. Do we not? What, what's the key in life, winning or trash talking? Well, in middle school, it's all about trash talking, right? Distracting from the battle at hand or the victory that is at hand. When we win, therefore, we have to learn to win all the way. We have to learn how to hold on to the victory and make it what we wanted it to be. And that's sort of a second step to any battle that you fight in life. The point isn't just to win the battles of life. The point isn't just to overcome the crises in the moment of challenge. The point is to live in victory or to live out the victory. And that takes something different. It takes something different. There's a difference between winning a battle and then living out the victory. It's a different skill set, uh, which Gideon the guy that we're studying right now in this sermon series, which Gideon begins to find out almost immediately after his battle with the Midianites turned into a victorious rout. No sooner, as he got in the upper hand, no sooner do the Midianites, Midianites turn and flee from his ragtag army, no sooner has Gideon become a conqueror than he learns there's actually more to victory than that. And that's kind of what we're uh, studying today. We are in the middle of this sermon series. It's out of the book of Judges. It's, it's, uh, we're looking at, at sort of the life story of this leader in Israel named Gideon. And in the first week, we saw uh, the Lord come to Gideon in the form of an angel uh, and sort of call him to be uh, a national leader. At the time, the Israelites were just super oppressed. They had been uh, oppressed and impoverished by a collection of uh, neighboring tribes called the Midianites. 
And it was so bad that when the scene first opens on Gideon, he's literally hiding in a hole, threshing grain, hoping that the Gideonites don't see his harvest so they don't come and just steal the grain away. The entire Israelite nation has basically learned to hide. Uh, They are seriously beaten down. And so the Lord says, hey, Gideon, you're actually a mighty warrior. The first thing that the first battle that Gideon fights is the battle against the false god of his village. Uh, Two gods, actually, Baal and Asherah. They were local gods with just inhumane and disgusting uh, worship traditions that surrounded them. And so Gideon wipes out the idols that his family had been worshiping, and he becomes Jerob Baal. That's the nickname they give him, a name that literally means to fight against Baal or to fight against false idols, to fight against lies. That's his nickname. That's a pretty good nickname. And then last week, uh, we saw Gideon blow the horn and gather soldiers to fight the Midianites finally, to actually go to war instead of hiding in holes. And then God steps him through a battle strategy that was pretty much insane. Gideon called the men of Israel to come. There are over 100,000 Midianites uh, facing him, we are told in the story. Gideon managed to gather about 30,000 Israelites. But then, uh, through various instructions, God induces him to send almost all of them home. And he goes into battle with only 300 men. Uh, God encourages him through the whole thing. If you were here last week, you... Uh, you know the story. Uh, God sows confusion in the enemy camp. The Midianites turn on each other, start killing each other. Uh, eventually, Gideon uh, calls out uh, the original soldiers again to come back and chase the Midianites once they're on the run. It turns into a rout. It turns into an awesome battlefield of victory. Uh, and now we pick up the story uh, at the end of Judges chapter 7. Uh, the story of Gideon only goes through Judges 6. Um, 7 and 8, a little bit of 9, depending on how you read it. So, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. What's happening is that the Midianites are running back uh, east into their territory. They're hightailing it home. And there are only a couple places where you can cross the Jordan River uh, with an army. And so he's calling down uh, some Israelites from the the half-tribe of Ephraim and saying, block the pass so they can't get away. That's what's going on. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, not as popular uh, baby names today. Uh, as you might think. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, well, yeah, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who is by the Jordan. Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us out when you went to fight Midian, when they went to fight Midian originally? And they challenged him vigorously. When Gideon originally blew the trumpet and called uh, his Israelite neighbors to battle, he did not include the Ephraimites in the call. And the Ephraimites were, uh, were uh, were of the tribe that lived closest to Gideon's tribe. We don't know why Gideon didn't call the Ephraimites originally. Maybe it was because they were too close. Maybe there was a sibling rivalry going there. Or maybe it was because the Ephraimites lived in the hills and it was hard for them to get down to fight on the plains. We don't know why, but eventually the Ephraimites come to battle. They do their job. They head off Oreb and Zeb and cut off their heads. And when they get back to Midian, they are offended. In the midst of this great victory, this revolutionary victory, this victory that's going to change the nation, what Gideon has to contend with this afternoon is, oh, I've offended somebody, right? I've offended my, uh, my brethren here. And they challenged him vigorously, uh, vernacular translation. They went off on him. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer, which is Ephraim's uh, little tribe, little village? 
God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. That's one interaction. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. So things are going so well that the victorious uh, 300 have not only chased the Midianites to the border of the Jordan, but now they're crossing the Jordan and heading into territory that Midian itself lived in. So they're, they're, they're really uh, chasing this victory out. Uh, so it's going well for them. He said to the men of Sakoth, which is an Israelite town, that, uh, or at least mostly Israelite, that was located right near the Jordan, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? <laughs> Not so fast. Then Gideon replied, Well, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Friendly interaction. From there, he went up to Peniel, same thing, another town right near the Jordan border, and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Sakoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Ziba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. So Gideon does what he intends to do. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle of the Pass of Harries, which is where he finally caught them, evidently. He caught a young man of Sakoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sakoth, the elders of the town. So he said, who's in charge of the town? I, I, want, I want the leaders. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sakoth, Well, here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? And he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sakoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. Some sort of whipping, I imagine. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel, and killed the men uh, of the town, which might mean the leaders uh, of that town. Then he asked Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? So now a different interaction. He hasn't killed Ziba and Zalmunna, the Midianite chieftains yet, uh, but uh, he's debriefing them. What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? I heard there was a battle at Tabor between you guys and the Israelites. Tell me about that. Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, oh, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them, kill them, boy. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. Ziba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. So this is a story about really the, the end of the, of the famous battle. And it's a, it's a story of several interactions that Gideon has as uh, things begin to wind down. Actions that he might not have predicted having. Gideon essentially won in a, in a rout. The enemy is trying to escape back to Midian intact. The challenge is to turn the battle victory into uh, a destruction of Midian such that they can't reinvade. Uh, so to turn winning into lasting victory, which again is such a huge life skill. How many times in your life have you fought the same sort of battle over and over and over. How many times in your life have you come up against the same sort of problem again and again and again? And what you'd like to do is just conquer a problem and then just keep it under your foot for the rest of your life, right? That would be the goal. 
And so that's the sort of thing that Gideon is thinking about right here. Wow, the Midianites have been kicking our butts for at least a generation. They've completely impoverished us. Here, for the first time ever, we have fought back, and thanks to God, we have won this battle. Now, I don't want to just win the battle. I want to wipe out this problem once and for all. I want to just destroy the Midianite army so that they can never come back and give us grief. I only want to fight this problem once. Everybody say, once and for all. All right, that's what's going on here. So once Gideon routes them with just 300 men, again, that's the miracle story, what he does is he calls back all the soldiers of the nation. Hey, you guys that I sent home, now I need you again. I'll come back out. It wouldn't have been like a lightning quick battle, right? We're moving thousands of guys across, across the wilderness, so they would have time to repack their bags and run back out uh, into the vital strategic points. Come back out because we won. Now we want to execute victory once and for all. That's what's going on. He calls Ephraim uh, to come down out of the hills. They sort of lived in a hilly place where they kept their herds. Uh, their sheep and, and their goats. Don't know why he didn't call them out the first time. Again, it might have been because, you know, this little rivalry that Ephraim had with the half-tribe of Manasseh, which was the tribe that Gideon was a part of or something, or maybe he just didn't want, he didn't think they could maneuver in the hills very well. But it turns out that he needs them particularly because Midian is running through their territory sort of to get away. And Ephraim answers the call. They join the route, and they do, they do well and they end up executing the two chieftains that they were assigned to, to, to fight. Uh, and then they flex their ego, right, by, by taking offense. Hey, you didn't call us the first time around. What are you trying to say, Gideon? You know, didn't we fight well here? Dude, you're trying to hog all the glory for yourself. You're trying to steal the credit, right? And Gideon answers them, I think, fairly diplomatically. Hey, you got the big victory today. You were the guys that got to, you know, conquer Oreb and Zeb. You know, those renowned oppressors of Israel. You won most of the glory anyway, so what are you complaining about? He assuages their ego, right? And they buy it. They're like, um, okay then. You know, don't let it happen again. Um, what bugs me about this interaction, and it's always important when you're studying a Bible passage to ask yourself what bugs you about it, but what bugs me about it is what he could have said. And in my mind, maybe what he should have said. You know, he's like, look, I'm just some poor kid from a small tribe. You had years to fight the Midianites. I come out, I route them, I get them on the run, and then you come out and execute a little bit of victory, and you criticize me? Why weren't you leading the charge? You have a bigger tribe than I do anyway. Don't go off on me. Right? That's what he should have said, right? Clearly, that, that would have been the right thing to do. Right? Anybody? Is it just me? I couldn't have taken that. It's like, seriously? I just attacked an army of 100,000 men with 300 guys with flashlights, and you're offended? You criticize me? But he plays it differently. And uh, how do you think he did? Did he do the right thing or not? Because I think the thing about Bible heroes is that they're very imperfect. So you always get to decide. Did he do the right thing? Did he do wisely or did he do unwisely here? What do you think? Wisely? Anybody think he's just an idiot? How many of you are entirely uncommitted to this battle? Because we're coming to you in a minute. All right, all right. Nobody wants to join in. I get it. Um, I don't know exactly what was going through Gideon's head, but, but here's what I think. <clears throat> All right, these guys are being grade A jerks to me, which is just what I expected from Ephraim anyway, which is why I didn't call them in the first place. I'm adding that part. I don't know if it's true. But these guys are being jerks to me. <sighs> count to 10, count to 10, 
All right, what am I trying to accomplish here? What I'm trying to accomplish is victory over Midian. And what I'm trying to accomplish is victory once and for all. So I actually need Ephraim to feel like they can fight. So I'm not going to criticize them or make fun of them. I'm going to make them feel powerful. Because the problem is, for the last generation, they've been hiding in the hills, not feeling powerful. So maybe this is an opportunity for me to build them up a little bit. Count to ten again. I think that was his play. And I think in this instance, he did very well. Everybody give Gideon some snaps. Not bad for a guy on his first military uh, campaign. Uh, he didn't let this ego ruin the victory. And in any life battle, there is always an ego issue. Just count on it. I don't care what your life challenge is. I don't care what kind of conflict you're in. I don't care what you're trying to overcome. There will always be an ego issue. Often the ego issue will be in you. Yeah, look to somebody and point at them and say, you. Let's drive the point home. Often the ego issue will be in the people around you who should respect you but clearly do not. And then the challenge will be, do I crush their ego or do I build their spirit? And it takes a lot of wisdom to do that well. There is always an ego issue. Can you just say that for me? Every project at work, every team project at school, every, every family issue, there is always an ego problem in the midst of it. I'm just telling you that so that you're not shocked. So that if somebody goes off on you for ego reasons, you don't just react. You actually think. All right, what am I trying to accomplish here? Which battle do I fight right now? Gideon stayed on, on course. He focused on the appropriate battle uh, in this instance. And, you know, it's always good to honor others more than you honor yourself. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb. And, uh, and it works in this situation as it works in many other situations. Now let's move on to his interaction with the folks of Sukkoth and Peniel. Uh, these two strategic border towns. So again, you know, this, these are primitive armies. They don't have lines of provision. You know, they're living off of what they can throw in their backpacks and, and scrounge from the land. And they're pursuing an army, fighting as they go. They're utterly exhausted. And they come to a town that had been oppressed by the Midianites and that one would think should feel thankful that someone in Israel is now fighting off the oppressors, right? But it turns out that the folks in Sakoth and Peniel have a habit of fear. Look, the Midianites have been oppressing us for at least a generation, for decades and decades at this point. Um, you say that you have beaten them, but like we don't have CNN yet. We haven't actually seen the battle footage. How do we know you're telling the truth? How do we know that this victory is victory once and for all? So what we're going to do, strange grubby dude whom we've never met before, is play it safe. And if you bring us some proof that you've achieved a mighty deed, uh, then we're with you. But until we do, um, you know, you're just going to have to make your, make your own way, you know? They're like, they're like sports fans who, uh, you know, every season they wear the t-shirt of the winning team, right? Yeah, yeah, we know. Uh, and then there are some fans that no matter how bad your team does, Phoenix Suns, Knicks, you... You, 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 you still wear the t-shirt, right? No matter what. And so these guys are front runners. They're like, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna wait to order our team gear until we see, you know, who's on top in the standings. Um, that was a lousy sermon illustration, but it was a great way to tease Nick. So I went for it. <clears throat> um, Here's what Gideon could have done. 
you know, versus what, what, he, what he did. He could have said, I get it. You guys have been victimized for so long. You've been beaten down in your spirits for so long that you really don't know how to fight anymore. You're just terrified. I sympathize with that. I understand. It wasn't so very long ago, like last week, that I was so terrified I was hiding in a hole doing my farm chores. It took a miracle of God to get me to go to war. I'm not going to judge you. Thanks anyway. Uh, would, you, would you at least pray for us? Right? That, that's what he should have said. Right? Because that would have been understanding and kind. Am I right? Anyone? What would you have done? A lot of us would have played it that way because we're nice people. You know, most of us. Um, but instead he was like, all right, um, I guess you've chosen sides. Uh, when I win, I'm going to whip you with thorns and briars. I'm going to come back, and this defensive structure that you have here, this tower, I'm going to tear it down and kill all of your leaders. Just so you know. Um, what do you think? Did Gideon choose wisely or unwisely in this instance? How many say smart? How many say stupid? I got slightly more of you to vote. The others of you are like the people of Sakoth and Peniel, like, well, we're just going to see how this turns out. And then we'll nod to each other later and say, that's what I was thinking. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very common way to uh, play it. I'm not sure what the perfect answer would have been uh, in this situation, but I think Gideon tries a pretty good one. So when he was dealing with the, the ego-infested Ephraimites, um, he, he bolstered them in a way that I think at least assured that next time there was fighting to be done, the Ephraimites would come out and fight, right? His problem with the folks of Sakath and Peniel is that they were still choosing not to fight, right? And we talked about this last week. The first thing Gideon did in the battle is he blew the trumpet. He gathered the soldiers, and then he checked with God to see if it was the right time to fight. And he checked with God to see what the proper way to fight was. But first he called battle, right? That's the first step. The first step to any life challenge, the first step to any victory, is getting to attack mode. And that's what the Israelites had forgotten. They had forgotten how to fight, period. Right? When God first shows up to Gideon, he says, Hello, mighty warrior. And Gideon had never fought a fight in his life. You know, he was hiding in a hole. The first thing God wants to do to restore people is he wants to restore their fighting spirit. That's step one. You're living in fear. I need you to live in faith. Right? The first battle is always the battle for faith. It's always the battle to believe that you can actually do something. It's always getting your fighting spirit back, in other words. And what was going on in Sakath and Peniel is that they had learned that neutrality was safety. They just wanted, you know, they just wanted safe spaces. They completely lost their fighting spirit. And Gideon's like, this I cannot deal with. This I cannot deal with. A little ego I can deal with. But a little fear, I can't. Fear, never good. Never good. Because fear is the opposite of faith. So he's like, well, I can't stand this. This is not something uh, that I, I think I can let slide. It feels like this is something I have to react strongly against. So I'll tell you what. I'm not going to kill you now uh, because I'm busy. Uh, but when I win victory, um, we're going to deal with this spirit that you, you folks have. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of what he does. The first step in any battle is the choice to fight. And these guys had chosen to not fight. And they needed to understand that the best response to evil is not to hide from it. 
the best response to life trouble is not to do nothing, ever. Um, so he took, he took action. Gideon's real battle is spiritual, right? The first person he became is Jeroboam to fight against false gods, to fight against lies. Um, and, and here he's fighting a spiritual battle, I think. It's, it's, it's this, the spirit of, of cowardice, maybe, or it's that spirit, the most deadly spirit in human history, uh, the most deadly spirit in the world today. It's the spirit of, eh, We've talked about the spirit of eh before, haven't we? You guys remember? Right? It, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the spirit that makes you do something. It's not the spirit that makes you quit. It's just the spirit that eh kind of makes you wait and see. It's the spirit of, of wait and see. The most deadly spirit in, in, in the world. Because it's the spirit that destroys most of us. It's like, well... Not today, you know. Like, I, there are important things to do. There's a call in my life, but I'll get to it, you know, eventually. One, once I get to a better place in life, you know, once I handle these things, once I'm not so busy, whatever it is, right? And the spirit of eh, the spirit of wait and see, the most deadly spirit in, in, the, in the world. The biggest danger to the kingdom of God is not the enemy, the biggest danger to the kingdom of God is the masses of uncommitted Christians. It's people who choose to not fight, to just kind of be there and see how things turn out. The number one danger. Jesus talks about this all the time, and I preach about it so much, I feel like I you know, don't really need to review those teachings here. Are you with me? You, you've heard me drone on and on about this stuff, right? And, and I think we could boil that lesson down to your individual life as well. The biggest danger to your life is not the stuff that comes against you. It's the days where you just sit on your butt and just kind of wait and see. The biggest danger to life, uh, period. Um, this needs to be dealt with uh, wherever one finds it. I had, uh, I had a great preaching moment uh, recently. I learned to preach uh, from this coach that I had uh, in middle school and high school, uh, Coach Jay McRoberts, who led the Letterman's Club at Scenic Junior High. Uh, and when I moved on to high school, he uh, was promoted up to the high school as well. He led the Letterman's Club there. And uh, that was my church uh, when I was a kid. I didn't always get to go to real church, but Coach McRoberts was this awesome Christian guy. And what he would do is he would gather all the athletes. It was supposed to be just the male Letterman, but it became so popular that everybody that was involved in sports and even some who weren't would get out of homeroom and come to the boys' locker room before school started. And he would preach at them. Of course, he didn't call it preaching because this was a public school, but he would just give us life lessons. And he would pretty freely talk about God and he would talk about faith. And I tell you, the best sermons I have ever heard came in the boys' locker room at Scenic Junior High School from Coach McRoberts. He died this past year. Tremendous loss. Hundreds and hundreds of former students came to his funeral uh, because he changed lives this way. And I just aspire to be as good a preacher as Coach McRoberts was. That's like my whole life goal. And, uh, and I was thinking about him recently. <clears throat> One of the things I'm doing now is I'm, I'm coaching a cross-country team, which is not a sport I did in high school, but... Uh, you know, my daughter got involved in it, so on the team, and I wasn't coaching her group. I was, I was running with a bunch of, of middle school uh, and freshman boys. And we were jogging up the pulley, and it was a really hot day as it's been, and they were dogging it. They were really slacking off. Uh, the head coach had given them a pace, uh, pace per mile that they were supposed to hit, and they were like 30 or 40 seconds off the pace, and their body language was just what you'd expect. It's like, I'm dying here. You know, and I'm, I'm like 52 years old and I'm out running them. And it's like, that's wrong. That's wrong. And so I started thinking about Coach McRoberts. What would Jay do? WWJD. And, uh, and so I'm like, I need one of those locker room sermons, you know, but I'm not feeling great either. It's, you know, it's 88 degrees and I've just run four miles. And so I, I said, so everybody stop. You, come over here. I gather them in. And, and, and I gave like a, a, a Coach McRoberts uh, sermon. I said, every day you can find good reasons to do what's asked of you. 
every day you can find good reasons to not do what's asked of you. The only thing standing between you and greatness is your choices. And then I started running again. That's a good sermon, right? Is that, is that a good sermon? That's a good, that's a locker room worthy sermon right there. And they didn't say a thing to me and I didn't say another thing to them. And they finished running like 90 seconds faster per mile. And at the end, I was struggling to keep up with them. So after practice, I put them before the rest of the team and I bragged on them for a little while. It worked. It worked. Every day, you can find excuses to do what you're supposed to do. Every day, you can find excuses not to. And they'll be good excuses. Good, reasonable excuses. I mean, the men of Sakoth had reasonable excuses. Look, every year we worry about our entire families being murdered. Pardon us if we don't just hand out bread. We're not sure what's going on here. That's a really good excuse not to fight. That's a really good excuse not to get involved. The problem is there was a bigger picture that they had lost track of. And there were equally good excuses for them to get involved. And that is life. That's life. You can always, always, easily, justifiably talk yourself out of doing the right thing. Always. Not a problem. If you need help, call me. I will give you some excuses. I am fantastic at it. Super creative. That's life. And you just have to decide what kind of person you are. Are you a warrior or are you a spectator? Are you someone who suffers through it or are you someone who conquers suffering? Entirely your choice. And all I can tell you is that, you know, if you don't get involved, I don't know, it might be okay, but it won't be great. That's not your path to greatness. So enough of that sermon. Uh, coach, if you're listening, I did my best. Um, <clears throat> in the end, uh, Gideon comes back and, uh, you know, enforces, enforces his judgment. He whips, he whips some leaders. Uh, he kills some leaders. He destroys a tower. And I don't know what Sakoth and Peniel will do in the future. I think they're just going to have another choice to make. But the next time uh, they face a choice about whether or not to get involved, they will at least understand that the choice has consequences, which is the lie that we tell ourselves in life. It doesn't matter very much if. And so Gideon is at least teaching them that actually it matters very much how you live and whether or not you choose uh, to, get, to get involved. All right, the final interaction he has is with these guys, Ziba and Zalmunna. Uh, they were significant chieftains in the, the Midianite mass uh, of invaders. And, uh, and Gideon uh, you know, has done what he set out to do. He captures them, which means that he probably destroyed tons and tons of their soldiers uh, on the way. And, and he's, he's bringing them back to Israel on sort of on parade, right? He's going to make a spectacle of them, uh, which was a fairly common thing to do uh, with uh, the chieftains or the, the enemy kings that you captured in battle. He wanted to show people, hey, we really got them. We really got them. Uh, so everybody um, be, be encouraged. <clears throat> but he, uh, we, we drop in on the interaction. He's having a debriefing conversation with Ziba and Zalmunna. It's like, well, tell me what the battle was like for you. Because again, there's no, there's, there's no CNN. There's, there's no news reports. It's like, I, I heard something where you guys fought a fairly big action at Mount Tabor. Um, tell me about that. Uh, <clears throat> what kind of men did you kill there is the way that it's translated in this account. Gideon is concerned, it's implied, because he knew that his family were fighting near Mount Tabor. And he said, oh, there was, 
there was a big battle there. You guys were on the run. You got into some you know, violent action there. Uh, tell me about that, guys. And Ziba and Zalmuna, who are jerks and defiant, as you would expect, uh, they say, oh, yeah, we killed a lot of guys who looked like you. I think they've put it together. They, they have sort of heard that Gideon is worried about his family and said, yeah, we killed, we killed guys that happened to resemble you. You know, they looked like you and they had the bearing of princes, is how the account puts it, which I think is a taunt. I think this is calculated to be an insult. It's like, yeah, we killed a lot of guys who look like you, who were acting all uppity like princes, but we mowed them down. So yeah, we're wearing chains, but uh, you know, we got yours, didn't we, big guy? I think that's the kind of tone of the interaction. You have to kind of put yourself in the moment in the, in the story. Uh, but, uh, but obviously, there's something, there's some strong undercurrent here. And so uh, Gideon's like, well, just for that, <clears throat> um, you know, I might have shown mercy uh, to you, uh, but, but no way. Now you're going to die. I don't know if Gideon was going to show them mercy. That doesn't make sense to me, given, given the way that he's behaved and what's at stake. But that's what he says. And he says, well, you know, with that insult, you've just dug your own grave. And, uh, and then he says to his boy, I don't know how, how old this kid Jether was. He says, all right, son, you kill them. What's Gideon doing here? And it's pretty obvious to me that this has become a personal thing. This has become a family thing for Gideon. Oh, you're bragging about killing my brothers. Well, then my little kid will kill you. We'll see who's tougher, you blankety-blank. I think that's what's going on. You get it? And so, massive insult, my little boy is going to lop off your heads. We'll see how tough you are. But the kid doesn't like the idea because he's a kid. And it's actually fairly hard uh, to, to kill uh, another man. Gideon has sort of miscalculated uh, the moment uh, with his son, uh, Jether. Uh, which occasions another reply uh, from... Ziba and Zalmuna, uh, they say, uh, you know, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength, which I think is an idiomatic expression. Uh, I think it means, oh, you better do it yourself, Gideon. Your boy is a sissy, right? He's not a man because he doesn't have the strength to do the deed. Are you following? All right, so this just got real uh, because... He just told a dad that his kid is, is a sissy. This is a very violent, pressurized situation. So, you know, obviously, um, obviously they're just being defiant. These guys have decided that they're going to die, and they're just looking to go out, you know, with as much attitude as possible, which you can kind of admire. You know, it's like, yeah, all right. If that's what you want to achieve in your final moment, you know, at least you're staying true to your values. Um, I don't know. But the whole thing just gets messy. So Gideon, Gideon kills them and took the ornaments off their camel's neck. Uh, here we get an indication. He kills them and he takes a trophy. He wants to be able to kind of show off. Yeah, that's right. I got them. That's the scene. Wise or unwise? How many say? Messy situation, but pretty good call. Pretty good way to play it. How many of you say, messy situation, really bad call, not the way to go? How many of you still stuck in Sakoth, waiting to see how this turns out? That's the thing, man. I mean, that's the thing about battle situations. It's like, I mean, they're, they're messy, you know? It is, it is hard in the moment where somebody has just been trying to kill you and you've just killed and the blood is flowing. Some of you have actually been in situations like that. Some of you have just been in situations that felt like that, you know, super stressful. There's an awful lot at stake, 
and here family honor and, and family loss is at stake. I mean, this, I mean, it's really hard to make the right call here. It's really hard. And so it's not a situation where we can really judge. I think Gideon makes some miscalculations. All right, kid, you do it. And the kid's like, no. Well, that's a bummer because now the kid's going to think that he doesn't have what it takes, right? And what was that kid doing there in the first place? You know, there's all sorts of things that you could speculate on here in this story. Gideon is trying to build, I think, a warrior feel around him, a warrior culture, uh, but but it's not, it's not going really well. And he gets frustrated because it doesn't go perfectly. He gets frustrated because he can't quite achieve what he wanted to achieve. And so he makes a choice to just take a trophy and to kind of brazen it out. Well, yeah, you could criticize me, but I got the bling. I got the medals, right? Uh, I got, it would have been a very ornate golden collar, that kingly collar that these guys would have decorated their camels with. You know, it's like having a total blinged out Cadillac or something like that. These guys had a blinged out camel. And so they basically, you know, stole the hubcaps and it's like, that's right. I don't know. I'm pressing the metaphor here. I don't know, but, but we'll read next week as we get to the story, the end of the story, that trophy taking and, and Gideon's frustrations and and, you know, at the end, I don't think he feels like the victory he wanted to feel like. Things never go perfectly, and you just got to be able to handle that in a positive way. And that ends up being a real uh, challenge to him. You got to know why you fight and what you're trying to accomplish. You know, was he trying to make himself look good? Was he trying to defend his family honor or was he trying to rid the nation of the Midianites? And he kind of gets confused there at the end. The life lesson, I think, is never try to prove yourself to anyone. Never do that. Never get into a spitting match that you don't need to get into. It's just never worth it. What do people think of me? What does, what does my enemy think of me? And all people in the world, the person whose opinion I care about least is my enemies. You know, how dare you say that to me? Like, what does it matter? You're going to be dead in a minute. You know, that's how he could have played it. But he doesn't make that, that call. Uh, Gideon may have thought at the beginning of the story, all I have to do is beat up Midianites. But it turned out that beating up the Midianites was only part of what it took to achieve victory. And life is often like that. You know, we say to ourselves, all I have to do is get married. Is that all you have to do, married people? No, because once you get married, there's living out marriage, and there's living in the victory of a healthy marriage relationship. Is that harder or easier than the battle to find a mate? Well, it's harder because you're in it now. But for those of us who are still trying to find a spouse, it doesn't seem that way, does it? You know? All I have to do is to finally get a good job, and then, then it'll be okay. Nope. Then you have to learn to live that 40, 50 hour a week life and to do it in a way that's constructive. Do it in a way where you don't lose your soul, you don't lose your purpose. You gotta live out the victory, right? That's the hard part. Oh, you know, all I have to do is beat this one sin. All I have to do is beat this addiction and kind of get this settled. Nope, because once you do that, then you have to learn to strengthen the areas that led you to trouble in the first place. You have to learn to live out the victory. And the story of the book of Judges, you can start playing in just a minute. You're doing great. <laughs> Give me something with like seventh notes, a ninth note, a little blues would be helpful. The whole story of the book of Judges is how the Israelites fell into idolatry again and again and again and again. And, and it's called Judges, it's plural, because God, again and again and again, would send them a great leader, would send them a deliverer like Gideon, who would win the day. But the Israelites never learned to live in victory. And as soon as the day ended, right back into trouble. They never learned how to daily live as wise warriors. They never learned how to not let the devil get a foothold, as the Apostle Paul would later say. They never learned how to be strong always. They never learned how to avoid big defeats in the first place, right? 
It's one thing for Gideon to rescue them, but it would be better if they weren't even in that situation. They never learned how to shore up their vulnerabilities. They never learned how to grow and to build themselves intentionally. They never learned to just enforce what they believed in faith. They never learned to just live out what they had achieved together as pure, faith-filled people of God. They never matured. They never matured. And therefore, they had to keep getting saved. So Gideon has won a radical battle here, but now he's confronted with lack of maturity wherever he turns. And ultimately, that's going to ruin the victory. That's the problem. He even confronts a lack of maturity in himself. As soon as you win the victory, then you have to fight the fight to mature. You have to fight the fight of maturity. The point is not just to escape disaster. The point is to be strong, mature people. It's easier to be radical than it is to be mature. That's actually the tagline to our upcoming all-church retreat. It's easier to be radical than it is to be mature. To be radical, all you need is one miraculous day. To be mature, you've got to be wise in very stressful situations. And that's just more complicated. It's hard to get right consistently. And the point of any achievement in life is life, you know? It's not just to beat up the Midianites. It's to live better, stronger, more fruitfully, more lastingly. It's, it's to get good at life itself, not just to save life, right? Saving life is just the precursor to getting good at life itself. So that's why the church retreat is structured as it's structured. We're going to look at quote-unquote normal areas of life. You know, home life, marriage, family, kids, singleness, job, finances, um, whatever. And we're going to ask ourselves, all right, well, what's maturity there? Because if you don't learn that, then even a miracle won't really help you, not for long. That's the story of the book of Judges, and that's the story of Gideon. Cue music. Let's just pray about that. <clears throat> thank you for deliverance, Lord. Uh, thank you for saving us. Uh, now we pray for maturity couple hallmarks of maturity. Uh, number one, mastery. You learn how to do things well and to stay out of trouble. Number two, I think you learn to be the sort of person that can provide for someone else. We pray, Father, that you'd make us into those sorts of people and that we could be lasting in our victory, uh, that we wouldn't fight the same problems over and over and over again that you would not just deliver us, but build us out of it. I'm just going to let the Lord speak to you about that for 30 seconds. Um, this is something that every human goes through. I'm just tired of facing the same problem over and over again. What can I do? What can I become to stay out of these messes? What can I do? What can I become? So that I can lead people forward.